In January uh, of, of this year, Andrea surprised me with tickets to see Nate Bargatze, the comedian guy who's going to be at the Orpheum in Wichita, and uh, we had been watching him on, on Netflix, and I was just so excited about this, and I just heard this guy that uh, was a little less famous, but was very, very talented, and very interesting, and uh, I thought, you know, this is great, so uh, we got the tickets, and we got down, you know, and if I remember correctly, I believe we started right on time, but when we did start, some Uh, he talked for about 15 minutes, which was about 15 minutes too long. Um, and then uh, he walked off the stage, and then, and then another guy came on who was not Nate, and uh, he talked for um, too long. It seems like he might have been a little funnier than the other guy. But uh, anyway, we, we just like we couldn't wait for all those guys that we didn't care about to get off the stage so that Nate could come out and, and we could actually uh, laugh a little bit. Uh, and we did. We had a great time. But that same thing happens if you watch uh, boxing or like MMA or something, right? But before the main event, a bunch of other fighters, uh, usually people that you've never heard of and nobody cares much about, they all come out and, 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 they, and they fight or they do whatever they do before um, the main event happens. And so we're wrapping up Revelation today. This is, this is week eight of this, uh, of this series. And I want you to think of um, Revelation 1 to 20 as kind of like the undercard ticket, right? All of this stuff has been going on, all of these things happening. S some of those things we, we kind of get, some of those things we don't kind of get. And so it's just like all those undercards. It's like, I don't really know, I don't necessarily know, care about what's going on here. But today, as we wrap up Revelation, we look at Revelation 21 and 22, th this really is the main event. And this is what all of Revelation has been building up to in, in preparation for what's to come and what we're going to look at today. So in last week's message, we, we covered chapter 17 to 20, and we witnessed the uh, final, final defeat of Satan and, and evil, right? If you, if you paid attention or you've been with us over the last eight weeks, you know that John has mentioned the, the final defeat of Satan um, I, for sure four times and probably six or seven times. He's kind of said, okay, it's the day of the Lord. It's the destruction of Satan and evil. And, and then you read the next few chapters, and, and here it comes again. But last week, we looked at the final, final battle and the final, final victory. And so what happens in chapters 21 and 22 are the depictions of what happens after evil is permanently quarantined from God's good creation. And, and finally, since Adam and Eve sinned, God and his people get to be together in perfect unity. Now, that doesn't mean that John stops using um, the symbolism that he has and painting like Picasso. It, it, it just means that we finally get to the end, the thing that we've been waiting for since the beginning of Revelation. And so let's dive in. Revelation 21, the first five verses here. John says, then I saw, so he's, he's seen all the destruction, 
All the plagues, the trumpets, the seals, the bowls, the sign visions, the final victory and defeat of evil. And, and, he, and it's like, okay, then he kind of turns the page. He turns the chapter. And he sees a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and earth, they had passed away. And the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It was prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be any mourning or crying or pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And so he who was seated on the throne, that's God, says, Behold, I am making all things new. That's a pretty good way to start uh, those chapters, right? And right off the bat, we we learn a few things. Um, We learn that there's going to be a new heaven. And um, this heaven is not going to be separated from earth like it is now, but this new heaven is going to be merged with earth, and that's why there's a new earth. Um, because what's going to happen is going to be different from what's going on now. There's a heaven that intersects with earth, and those things are new. And they're new because they're together, and that hasn't happened. He also says there's going to be no more sea, which seems really odd, right? I mean, you're like a new heaven, new earth. Why does he mention this? Like, what's wrong with um, water? But if you remember back in the earlier chapters of Revelation, uh, water or the sea in particular represents fear and danger, and it represents the unknown. And so John is is using this as a way to say, look, there's not going to be anything for you to fear in this new heaven and and new earth. There's not going to be anything that's going to be unknown to you, is going to give you any terror. There's not going to be any danger for you. That's why he uses that term. And then he also says there's going to be a new Jerusalem. But he points out that this Jerusalem isn't going to be built up from the earth. It's going to come down from heaven which means God is the architect, God's the builder, God's the creator of this new Jerusalem, it's not man. Now, that's a, that's a lot. I mean, that's like, that's everything. It's all gonna be, it's all gonna be new. And, and it's really cool because this is what God has desired uh, from the beginning, that he would be with his creation in unity. And so this phrase Um, God will be their God and and they will be his people. That phrase appears 13 times in in the Bible, 10 in the Old Testament and three in the New Testament. And it actually appears more often than that. Um, But that particular phrase that that John uses where God says, I'll be with my people, I'll be their God and they will be my people. That particular phrase happens 13 times different times. And the first time it happens is way back in the beginning, Genesis chapter 17 and verse 7, when God calls Abraham. Now, we started this series looking at at Genesis at the beginning, and so it's fitting that we kind of go back there a little bit and, and look at this. In the beginning, God calls Abraham. And as far as we know, Abraham is not a believer. He's not a follower of of God. There are no uh, temples to worship in. Um, We're not really told anything about Abraham's uh, beginning or how he got there. We know that he's just a few generations from Noah, 
uh, and, and like their timelines almost overlap, but not quite. But um, Abraham, his dad would have been able to tell him stories about his grandpa Noah. Like it's kind of a cool. So that's the timeline we're going to look at. So God calls Abraham and he says, Abraham, if you follow me, if you listen to me, if you obey me, then I will be your God and, and you and your family will be my people. And it's from the line of Abraham that we get the Jewish nation, nation the, the Israelites. And, and God extends that same covenant that he started with Abraham to the Israelites at Mount Sinai. When they get out of Egypt and they go into the desert, they stop at Mount Sinai. God's presence comes down. God's presence is depicted on Mount Sinai just exactly like it's depicted in Revelation by John. Thunder and, and lightning and thick black smoke. And it's like terrifying God's presence when he invades our, uh, our humanity and our earth. And so that covenant and is extended to, to Israel, um, and, and then um, Israel doesn't, doesn't really live up to their end of the bargain, right? Like, they don't follow the covenant of God, and, and so um, it's broken by uh, the people. And the people of Israel then go into exile, and while they're in a exile, prophets like Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Zechariah, they all talk about this point that if we in exile will humble ourselves and we'll repent and we'll call out to God, then God will bring us back to Israel, back to the land that was promised to us, and he will be our God and we will be his people. And so this phrase just continues to get repeated, even in the New Testament, 2 Corinthians 6, 16 and Hebrews 8, 10, and then here in Revelation, when all of God's covenants with humanity have been fulfilled by Jesus, and evil is finally quarantined, and God can finally then be with his people in, in perfect unity. He can be their God, and we can be his people. And the result of God's presence with his people uh, is, is really cool. It results in uh, this, this idea that God will wipe away every tear. And so there's a lot of uh, conversation and a lot of talk about what, what this actually means. God's going to wipe away every tear. So does that mean there's going to be crying in, in heaven? Um, and, and then we, got, we get to think, right? Like all of us have family or friends, people that we have loved, that, that, that we have a suspicion or maybe we flat out know that, that they passed away from this earth without making a decision for Jesus. And, and that causes us some pain, right? There, there's some tears that have been shed for that. So let me give you another idea, um, my opinion. I, I think this might be what John is trying to say. Um, there have been a lot of tears in, in this world. You, you have shed them. I have shed them. Uh, and, and, and when this is finally over, there's going to be tears for those people that we have maybe lost that aren't going to be there with us. So picture this. As heaven and earth pass away and the new heaven and earth Come and there's a unity between God and humanity, in that moment, God wipes away every tear. The idea is God wipes away all the tears from this existence that we have. So God kind of wipes away our tears and then says, okay, come into this new creation where there will be no more death which has caused a lot of tears. And there'll be no more mourning over those who have died or over our lives or missed opportunities. We've shared a lot of tears over there. And then he says, there's not gonna be any more crying. So once we get to heaven, the new humanity, um, there, we're not gonna cry anymore. There's not gonna be any 
pain. Why? Because he says the old order of things has passed away. The old order of things where there was pain and fear and danger and loss and evil and struggle and there was adultery and, and there, was, there was murder and there, all of these things, all of that goes away. Evil, as we saw in Revelation 17 to 20, has been quarantined. It has been separated. It has been removed from God's good creation. And so there's no reason to cry anymore. And so I just, I, I have this kind of beautiful image in my head of getting to that moment where God says, okay, it's time to stop crying over the things that have been because I'm doing something new. And doesn't that kind of change the, the way we think about that? Like, like wow, that's kind of, kind of amazing. And then once God wipes away our tear, there's not going to be any reason to cry ever again because there's not going to be any of the stuff that causes us to cry Today, because God is making everything new. Well, um, er earlier this summer, um, you remember when the tornado came through Andover? I, I, and I don't know if you suffered like we did, but um, we got some hail damage on our roof. And so out of that, you know, got to have the insurance adjuster come. We've never had to deal with that before. And um, so they came out and they totaled our roof and uh, cut us a check um, for that. And so th this, this is the way things usually happen with me um, in my life. Uh, something happens and that sparks a whole cascade of things that cause me a lot of uh, work and, and sweat and, and tears like we've been talking about. So we're going to get a new roof on the house. And, and I tell Andrea, man, um, it would be a really good idea before the new roof gets put on if, if we could go ahead and, and build that addition uh, on the covered porch that we want to build off the back of the house for Trent to have a place to go when, the, when it's raining or whatever, because he likes to swing, and we don't have a swing at the house now. So let's, let's build this um, covered uh, thing off the house so it's strong enough that we can put a swing out there and Trent can, can have something to do when the weather's not great. Um, and, then, and then, of course, if we're going to do that, what really needs to happen is that we read to, I need to rebuild the deck because the deck's pretty um, small and old and kind of fall apart. And so I need to rebuild the deck and make it bigger. And that's got to happen before I can put the roof on over the top. And then that has to happen before the roofers come and read because then they'll redo the whole thing. Um, all at once. Uh, and so, uh, so this just creates this huge, big um, tr trickle-down thing where I've got to just build or rebuild all of these stuff. And so I've got some um, pics of the, of the progress uh, for you. Maybe. I think they'll be coming up here. I've got some pics of the pro progress for you. There we go. These are the pics of the, of the progress. Um, so you can see up there also, but this is the old deck, these deck boards here. And then this is all the new stuff that's um, go, going around and, and, and being added, uh, added to it. Um, existing decks and the, and the framing, and we're extending the deck and making it longer and making it a little deeper. Uh, and, then, and then here's some pics of the, um, of the new deck uh, on the house. Um, so I want you to notice something. Uh, you cannot see anything from the old deck. It's there, but you can't see it. Um, so if you come to my house and you go out back, all you will see is the new deck. 
You're not going to be able to see anything that was left of what existed previously. But the bones of that old deck were good, and so I left them. And I just added on to it. I just encompassed it. I made it bigger. And I think this is what John is saying, that God will make a new heaven and a new earth because the old heaven and earth were tainted with evil and sin and death. But the bones of his original creation will still be there. We just won't be able to see them because everything we see will be new. So we go, what what will be new in this new heaven and and earth? Um, Well, the new earth isn't corrupted by evil. Evil has been dealt with. It's been separated from all of God's creation. And so there'll be no evil. There'll be a, a new heaven that won't be separated from earth. They'll be in unity anymore. And then, as John said, there's going to be a new Jerusalem. And Jerusalem signified the dwelling place of God, where humanity and God were able to kind of intersect there in the temple specifically. Um, and, and this new creation, this new heaven and new earth, They have nothing to do with the ancient evil and pain and faithlessness of the Israelite people or of the people before them or of the people since then. None of that is there. The desecration of God's temple, all of that has been done away with and God brings us a new new Jerusalem. And, And the reason for that is that God's goal has always been to gather his people to himself. From the very beginning, that's what God wanted, right? He created Adam and Eve. He created humanity in order to have a relationship with them. And he wanted to be with them. And if you go back to that story, you remember uh, Adam and Eve sinned. God knew Adam and Eve had eaten of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And yet that evening he came down and he walked in the garden and he said, where are you? He wanted to have that relationship. He didn't want to see it broken. And ever since then, he's been trying to put that back together, but we have failed over and over and over to live up to the standard that's been set. So beginning with Abraham, God wanted people to follow him, to love him, to love others, and bring them into that relationship where every person possible from every tribe and language and tongue and and nation could be a part of the kingdom of God. That was his goal. When he set the covenant before Israel, he told them, I'm going to make all of you a kingdom of priests so that you can be the go-between before all nations of the world that everybody might come to Jerusalem to worship me at my temple. But it doesn't happen. Israel fails. We fail. Abraham failed. David failed. Everybody failed. And so Jesus comes, and he does what Israel failed to do. Jesus fulfilled the covenants that God had made, and then he called his followers to do the same, to live like him or to look more like him, to help every person possible find real life in Jesus, and then themselves look more like him every day. And so God's people will gather together with God in this new creation to be one and unified. And this new creation is the bride of Jesus. This new creation that God makes, where where he makes everything new, this is 
the, the bride of Jesus, where God and his covenant people live together in unity. And everything that God has made new becomes the bride. And so here's what happened. God creates this new heaven and earth where there's no evil or pain or fear or crying. And everything is perfect. And God gives a new Jerusalem, uh, a, a new city, a new place for his presence. And this new creation then matches the perfection and holiness of Jesus and becomes his bride. Did you see that, that picture? God makes everything new and then he gives all of this to Jesus uh, as a bride. Look at Revelation uh, 21, 15 to 17. John goes on, he says, the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and its walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width, and he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are all equal. And then he also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, also uh, angels measure it. Now, um, there's a lot of, of stuff here, so do your best to, to keep up. When the prophet Ezekiel was in exile in Babylon, right? He, he uh, was taken from Israel in the first, uh, the first exile, the first time King Nebuchadnezzar came, he conquered Israel, and he took all of the important people out of Israel and took them back to Babylon, and, and Ezekiel was part of that uh, part of that group. Most of the Jews were then taken there. And Ezekiel has a vision on, I think it's his 30th birthday. It's actually um, the day that if, had he been in Jerusalem, he would have been installed as a priest in the temple. But instead of that, because he's in exile, he can't be in the temple. And so he's kind of um, mourning out by the Kibar Canal uh, by a Jewish settlement there outside of the city. And he's sitting by the, the canal, and, and he's kind of lamenting his life. Uh, today's the day that I would have been a priest if I were home, but I'm in exile, and that can't happen, and what will ever happen again? And while he's sitting there, he sees a vision of God. And in that vision, Ezekiel was given a measuring stick, and he was given an elaborate explanation of the temple and the temple compound and the city of Jerusalem. Uh, and, it's, and it's really uh, interesting. And, and so God is talking to Ezekiel specifically about the exile of the Israelite people. And, and he's saying, look, look, Ezekiel, don't give up hope. Because I'm going to bring my people back to Jerusalem. And one day, the, the Jerusalem and the city and the temple is going to be perfect. And there's a big difference, though, between John's vision of the city and Ezekiel's vision of the temple. And so we're going to take a closer look at what um, John saw. So the walls of the city were 12,000 stadia, and its length and its width and its height are all equal. Um, do, do you know what shape that would make? Length, width, height, all the same. Cube. Yeah, it's a cube. <laughs> Um, so just kind of keep that in, in your head. Length and width and height are all the same. So the walls of the city of this new Jerusalem that comes down from heaven are 1,400 miles long and wide and high. Um, so I want to give you kind of a, a picture of, of what that might look like. Uh, from the Civic Center, 201 East Central, to my parents' door in Caldwell, Idaho, is 1,362 miles, almost 
1400. Um, it takes 19 hours and 43 minutes. I know this because I Googled it, okay? Uh, I, don't, I don't really, anyway, I won't go there. Uh, so I, I, just because I was looking for a reference, okay? So you got to go almost all the way through uh, Kansas. You got to go all the way through Colorado, all the way through Utah, and most of the way through Idaho because um, Boise Caldwell is about 15, 20 minutes from the Idaho border with Oregon. So three full states you got to go through to get to 1,400 miles. And so you, you think of this city that comes down from Jerusalem, and it's 1,400 miles this way, and it's 1,400 miles this way, and it's 1,400 miles that way. Let me just ask you, does that sound like a literal city or a figurative symbolic city to you? Um, now, we think about that and we go, oh, man, that's, you know, that's pretty impressive. But in fact, John goes on to say the walls of the city are 200 feet thick, which they would have to be if they went three states up into the, up into the air. But just let me ask you a question, though. What is the reason for walls around a city in the ancient time period? What did they do? They kept people out of the city, right? You, you wanted to, to be in a city that had big walls and, 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 and wide walls because then you felt protected like the stuff outside isn't going to be able to get inside. The question is, why are there walls in a new heaven and a new earth where there's no evil or pain or crying or mourning? There is no need for walls in a new creation like that. And, and so we, we got to go, okay, wh what was John talking about? Why did he see this, this vision? And so we got to dig a, a little bit deeper. When God gave Moses the instructions for building the tabernacle, which was the portable kind of the church of the day, this is where the Ark of the Covenant would uh, reside. And the Ark of the Covenant was like the hot spot of God's presence. God was said to actually dwell over the cherubim on top of the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant was set inside a room of the tabernacle called the Most Holy Place. So you had a front room um, where there's a table of showbread and the, and the altar of incense and the lampstand. And the priests would go in and out of that front room and they'd put new bread out every day and they'd light the lamps and they'd burn incense there, the prayers of the people to God. And they would go in and out all the time. But the Most Holy Place could only be entered one time a year, and it could only be entered by the high priest after he had gone through this huge ritual of stuff, um, washings and all of these things, so that when he went into the most holy place, closest to God's presence of anyone, he didn't die. It was kind of a scary deal to be in God's presence, that close to holiness. And so the, the, the most holy place when God gave Moses the instructions for building the, the tabernacle was to be 30 cubits long and 10 cubits wide and 10 cubits high. Uh, and so the room in which the ark was placed, the most holy, uh, the most holy place where God's presence was, was 10 cubits wide and 10 cubits deep, and 10 cubits tall. That, that's uh, 15 feet, roughly. Um, so what's that? 15 feet wide and deep and tall. 
That's a cube. <laughs> okay. Then Solomon built the temple after Israel had, uh, had, had taken over the promised land. Solomon builds the temple of God in Jerusalem on the Temple Mount, and, the, and this, Solomon's temple is bigger. It's 60 cubits long, it's 20 cubits wide, and in the front of the temple, it's 30 cubits high. Uh, the holy place where the priests would go in and out to do the bread and the incense and all of that was 30 cubits high. But in the back room, called the most holy place, it was 20 cubits wide and 20 cubits deep, or 30 feet wide and deep and high. So the most holy place in Solomon's temple was a cube. Now, um, Ezekiel is with the Israelites in exile in Babylon, and while he's sitting at the Kibar Canal, he sees this vision it's a vision of the portable throne, the throne chariot of God. And, and Ezekiel goes into some pretty interesting detail about the animals and the things that are there. Um, and, and above the animals, it's like a platform, and there's this expanse over the top of it, and he sees a throne, and, and the body of the man on the throne or the person on the throne is glowing, and it's brilliant, and there's thunder and lightning and um, black smoke and all of this stuff, and he recognizes that this is the, the image of the presence of God in physical form. And as he describes it, you get this distinct feeling that what he's describing here is a cube on wheels that has moved from Jerusalem, where God's presence was supposed to dwell, and come all the way to Babylon. And so Ezekiel's like, what's going on? God, you're supposed to be back home in Jerusalem. We are far away from you. You're not supposed to be here. Why are you here? And so he sees this huge vision of the desecration of, of the temple, of, of Israelite people in the temple, and they've brought in foreign gods, and they're bowing down to the gods of Babylon and Assyria, and they're worshiping them, and they've, they've taken away the, the cherubim and the pomegranates that were all over the walls inside the temple, and they've added images of all kinds of creepy, crawly things to, to worship. And so outside the temple, they're worshiping these foreign idols and gods, and inside the temple of God, they're worshiping these foreign idols and God. And so God has left his temple. That's the vision that Ezekiel sees. God's presence leaves the temple, the place that was to be his home. He said, I can't stay here anymore. There's too much evil going on. And so he leaves. And the vision that Ezekiel sees is a cube. And, and now, John says, we have a New Jerusalem. And when he measures it, it measures out to be a cube. Now, b before you start buying cubes and setting them in your house and, and saying, oh, this represents God, that's called idol worship, and we don't want to do that. Um, cubes are not to be worshipped. They're not special. They're, they're not spiritually significant, although there is a significance to them. Here it is. When the people who were undergoing severe persecution and punishment by the Roman Empire, who are dying because of their faith, read Revelation. And they read this part in chapter 21 that says this new Jerusalem that comes down out of heaven is going to be a cube. What do you think enters their minds? 
This is the presence of God. Just like it was in the tabernacle, just like it was in the temple, just like it was in Ezekiel's vision where the presence of God is moving over the earth. And now God says, look, I'm going to build this city and, and the presence of God is going to be everywhere. In fact, if you read the rest, and I kind of left this out of the message, but I'm going to throw it in because I think it's important. Um, if you read the story there in, in chapter 21, what you find out is that in the walls of this city that are 1,400 miles across, in the walls of the city, there are 12 gates. There are three gates on each exterior wall of the, of the city. And at each one of those gates, there is an angel supposedly guarding the gate. But as you get down to the end of chapter 21, we read that the gates never close. And so I have to ask myself, what is the point of having a gate that is never shut? There's no point to having a gate that's never shut. It, it, it's, there's no reason for it. What is God trying to get across to us in, in Revelation? What is happening here? Why, these things don't make sense to me. And, and so what we see here is people reading this story and they're seeing the gates and they're recognizing there will never be any night in this new creation. And there's no shadow because the light comes from the throne of God and, and from the land, it's a lamb. And so there's no reason to fear. There's no danger. There's nothing that's going to come into the city that might cause problems. There's no evil that can get in. So the gates never need to be closed. So what I'm saying is this cube imagery would have pointed people and I think should point us today to, to the realization that the new heaven um, and, and the new earth is God's presence everywhere. So do I believe there's going to be a literal city with 1,400 miles wide long coming out of uh, heaven? No. I believe the city that John sees represents the new creation that God has made, where God's presence is everywhere, where there's no need to fear, there's no need for walls, there's no need for gates, no evil can ever get in. God's presence is there and protects all his people. So it's not like a physical place like the tabernacle or the temple where you have to go to be with God. God's physical presence in Revelation is everywhere with us. The entire earth will be this city of God and we will finally be his people, which is what he's wanted all along from the very beginning. It's why he called Abraham so that he could be their God and we could be his people. Uh, but but there's more here. When John saw the city, he said there was no temple in the city. I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. There is no temple because God and Jesus are physically presence, present with all of his creation. There's no need for a temple to go and worship because you can worship at the throne of God because you can see him and you can be present with him. All right, let's jump to chapter 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. On either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. It will be in the city. 
and his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. Remember, we go back to what that means. And night, night will be no more. There will be no need for light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. And we go back to Ezekiel. Because Ezekiel had this same vision of a river, only it was coming out of the temple, not the throne of God. Here John doesn't see a temple because God is present with his people. He sees the throne of God and the river from the throne came out and watered the entire world. It provided life and food for everyone and for everything. And so again, we see this picture of God saying, I'm I'm king. <laughs> I, I'm more powerful than any other nation, any other world power, and I will sustain everything in this new creation. And we see glimpses in what John sees in Revelation of not only the Garden of Eden with the tree of life, but then Ezekiel's visions of a people no longer in exile, a people with God. And, and so um, this idea of exile be- begins in the Old Testament. In fact, today, the New Testament says that you and I as followers of Jesus are supposed to recognize that this place, this world is not our home. And that's why we don't have to chase all the things that everybody else chases. We don't have to chase pleasure. We don't have to chase money. We don't have to chase relationships We get to be with God now, and we get to hope for a time when we're going to be with him physically. The Bible says we get to see him face to face. We get to look in his eyes, an amazing time and thing. And this is what John is is seeing in Revelation, God's presence with his people. And so we're supposed to to say, um, not separate ourselves from the world and, and say like, well, I'm, I'm going to heaven so the rest of you can go to hell. <laughs> That's not what we're supposed to say. We're supposed to say, come with me to heaven. Come with me to a place where, where you're not going to cry anymore. And, and yes, this world stinks sometimes, but there's, there's hope for something else and something better. And so I want to look at one last um, passage to sum up the entire book of um, Revelation. This is chapter 22, 16. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. That's us. I am the root and the descendant of David. That goes back to Revelation chapter 1, chapter 5. I'm the bright and morning star. And so the spirit and the bride, remember the bride is the new creation. The spirit and the new creation say, come. And let the one who hears say come. And let the one who is thirsty come. And let the one who desires to take the water of life, uh, let one who desires take the water of life without price. So in this new creation, God calls to all humanity. And the the call he gives is the same call he gives today. Come, come and see, come and check it out. Come and understand my love. Come and have a relationship with me. And and then Jesus says, those people who hear that call to come, which which is you and I, people who've given our lives and surrendered to Jesus, when we hear that call to come and we respond, then what do we do? 
We also join with Jesus and say to others, come, come and see. Come and see what God is doing in my life. And come and see what God is doing in this family of the church I have. Just come and experience it for yourselves. And then Jesus says, if you're thirsty and nobody says, come to you. Well, you can actually find the water that quenches your thirst so that you'll never thirst again. And so even if nobody says, come to you, you can still come and be a part of this. And anyone who desires to be a part of this new kingdom can come without cost and receive the same as the rest of us. Does this sound like God is trying to exclude people from heaven? Or that he's saying to everyone in the world, come, I have this thing and it's going to be beautiful and it's going to be amazing and I want you to experience it with me and you just got to come. You just got to come check it out. You just got to come see like the rest of us just just come. And, and so, that, look, our, our faith, it doesn't have to be scary and it doesn't have to be weird. We can just tell the people, look, th- this is what I'm experiencing in my life. This is how God is working in my life. You come and see. Come and see what it's like. The gospel and eternity, they are not exclusionary. They are for anyone who would surrender to King Jesus. And so I want to sum up Revelation, all 22 chapters of Revelation in um, one sentence. And it's kind of a long sentence, and the punctuation may not be accurate, but um, hopefully you'll get it. Here's the um, sentence. Jesus the King died in our place and rose as our defender, inviting us into a relationship with the Father where we can live our real lives now through the power of the Holy Spirit. And through that power, we can surrender daily to Jesus' reign, because he's the king, as we wait for his return. This is what John was trying to say to the people. Look, Jesus came and he died for all, not just us, but for everybody, for us as all of hu- humanity. And, and, and all you got to do is surrender to the king. And when you do that, you can daily live that surrender through the power of, of the Holy Spirit as we wait for the day when all this stuff that John says in Revelation is going to happen. And the sky is going to part, and the trumpet's going to sound, and Jesus is going to appear, and every knee will bow, and every tongue confess. And we're going to see this new heaven and new earth where sin and evil and, and, and sadness and depression and death are removed. And we get to live in the presence of God for all eternity. When Jesus returns, it will be his king. And he will usher in his eternal king. And so we've covered the whole book of Revelation. And, and so I, I thought, how do I, how do I wrap this up? And I have no good way except what John already wrote. He who testifies to these things is Jesus. So surely I am coming soon. And John's only response to all that he's seen in the revelation is this, amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you for the revelation. As as difficult as we have, have, have felt like it is for so long, you have given us some clarity and we thank you for that. And God, I thank you that we don't have to have it all figured out. That, that I've tried to be as accurate as, as possible, but maybe I messed up. But if I did, this is 
not going to keep us out of, of your heaven. If we surrendered to your son Jesus, we're in. And so we thank you for that. And God, would you, um, would you be with us? Would you watch over us? Would, would you, as John tried to do, would, would you help us rely on you and the Holy Spirit in our lives to stand up under any persecution that we might feel for friends or family or work? That we might live in this world as exiles. That we might pray for the benefit of our country and our nation or world but that we would always recognize that we're a part of the kingdom of God. And, and so the moral, the, the ethics of that kingdom, we, we can't ever depart from. And when those morals and ethics are different from the morals and ethics of, of the country that we are in, God, we, we have a responsibility to live for you. And, and like John said, even in the face of death, to, to say there's a world that's better, there's a place that's better, and I'm looking forward to that. And so God, help us to stand, to wait, to surrender to you daily, to the reign that you have even now, as we look forward to the hope of heaven, the hope of this unified heaven and earth where we can be with you and each other forever in perfect unity. We look forward to that, God, and so we say, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus.